0: Take a copy of God's Word this morning, we're going to turn open to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, if you're using a pew Bible there, it's on page 966 of the pew Bible, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, this morning we're just going to look at verses 14 through 15, 2 Corinthians 5. Let's go ahead and pray before we hear God's word read and preached this morning. Father, we do believe that this word is living and active, and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. And we pray this morning that it would be living and active in our midst. We need your Spirit to take, or just letters on a page, and to work them in our hearts and into our souls, to our very persons. We might know that we have heard from you the living God, who speaks to his people. Speak to us today, O Lord, we pray. In the strong name of Christ, Amen. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 14-15, through 15, this is the holy, inerrant, sufficient Word of God. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. Therefore, all have died, and he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who, for their sake, died, was raised. Though so the grass withers, the flower fades, the word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. these next few weeks are some of my favorite weeks of the calendar year here in East Lansing where all of the students descend upon the area and staff comes back and faculty comes back. There's just all of this energy in the air. The the streets are packed. Uh, There are people in all of the restaurants. Just excitement. And my hope and my exhortation uh, for us as a body this week and over these next few weeks uh, is to remind you of what you are already good at, is that hope that we would have a good spirit of warm hospitality as different people walk through the doors here at University Reformed Church uh, over these next weeks. I would encourage you uh, that this takes all of us. Thanks all of us for this place to have a spirit of hospitality, and so would you think about starting today and over these next few weeks, uh, introducing yourself to uh, two different people that you don't know, uh, that you see in the pew by you or in the hallway? Now listen, I understand the fear. Uh, some of you have been here for a while, and you think, well, I'm not sure if they've been here for a while or if I'm introducing... We have two years of COVID as an excuse. Uh, we haven't been together. Uh, I introduce myself to people every week that have been here longer than I have. Uh, so you can do it as well. Uh, just introduce yourself to someone. Uh, get to know them. Maybe introduce them uh, to someone else as we seek to extend hospitality, especially over these next weeks. You know, some will come through these doors over these weeks, uh, and they will come here searching for something. They don't quite know why they're here. They don't know what they're searching for. Uh, but they know they're searching for something. In fact, that may be true of some of you even here this morning. You're not quite sure why you're here, but you came and you're here. You're searching for something. The questions that go through the mind can be things such as, I don't quite know why I exist, I don't know what my purpose is, or even that just more fundamental question, who is it exactly that I am? This passage this morning, it, it has answers to all of those questions, and I think it's helpful for all of us as we sit in this place and as we think about such things as we consider our lives. What controls you? What controls you? What motivates you? What is it that shapes you? Some will move to East Lansing over the next weeks. They will be driven by an experience to have fun. It's just fun that drives them. There will be others that are here to find a future spouse. That's what drives them. Or to find friends like they didn't have back home. That's what drives them. That's what shapes them. There will be some that believe that they are on the path as they come to this city and are on the path to riches and to fame. That's what drives them. What drives you? What controls you? Paul says that there is one thing One thing that controls the Christian. One thing. He says in our text, the love of Christ controls us. The love of Christ controls us. We're doing just a short little sermon series over these last couple of weeks. This being the final week before next week we start the the book of Hebrews. We're just looking at life in Christ. What does it look like to have a life in Christ? In that first week, we looked at life in Christ. In the second week, we looked at life with Christ. And now this week, what I want to do is look at life for Christ. So all we're doing with this passage, we're not doing a deep dive. All we're doing is looking at these two verses and what is it that Paul is bringing forth for us about life for Christ. Life for Christ. And I want to do it this morning with two questions. Just want to take two questions to organize us as we go through this text, and then I want to apply it in four ways. So, two questions followed by four applications. The first question is this What is it that controls the Christian? What is it that controls the Christian? And Paul's answer is the love of Christ controls. That is, the Christian life is a life lived for Christ. A life lived for Christ. What is this love of Christ that controls, that Paul has in mind? It is not where our mind immediately runs, our love for Christ. It's not The love of Christ that Paul has in mind here. It's not our love for Christ, but rather it is Christ's love for us. Everything always begins in the Christian life with Christ's love for us. And he makes it very clear that it is this love that he's speaking of. Christ loving us. This is made clear by the fact that Paul goes on to detail the great act of Christ's love, His atoning death. His death for sinners. And so it is that love that he says is the engine of the life of the Christian. Christ's love. Now, having been the recipient of that love, having received Christ's love, for sinners we respond to. it. But it's that love that marks the Christian. Charles Hodge, in commenting upon this passage, pointed out that the trait common among all Christians is this. He makes the point that it's not benevolence, because if it was benevolence that marks somebody as a Christian, that makes someone a Christian, then every philanthropist would be a Christian. He says it's not reverence for God that makes one a Christian, because if that was the case, then every Muslim and every Jew would be a Christian. He says it's not morality that makes one a Christian, because if it was that that makes one a Christian, then every person that is honorable would be a Christian. Now, what is it that makes one a Christian. It is not virtues that make the man or woman a Christian, but being a Christian that makes one a virtuous man or a woman. If being virtuous doesn't make someone a Christian, then what does? The Christian is above all else. Someone who has been united to the person of Christ. You're united to Christ. You've received the love of Christ, a person who has been seized and changed by the love of Christ, for the love of Christ controls us. Paul's saying, I've been gripped by this love of Christ. Now, because we're the recipients of Christ's love, because that love has been poured out upon us, the Christian then is so affected by that love that we are, as Paul says here, compelled, or as the old translations would say, constrained to make our living a living for Christ. So affected by this love. So gripped and changed by this love. That now we live a life for Christ. It moves us. It presses us. It shapes us. It compels us. The love of Christ for the Christian becomes the great governing influence over our entire lives. It shapes everything. As Hodge said about the Christian living for Christ, he said, the man who does this perfectly, is a perfect Christian. The man who does it imperfectly, yet with the sincere desire to be entirely devoted to Christ, is a sincere Christian. On the other hand, the man who lives supremely for himself, for his family, for science, for the world, for mankind, whatever else it may be, he is not a Christian. That's right. Our second question, why should this love, why should this love of Christ control us? Paul says, we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Why should this love control us? Because it's an extraordinary love. It's an extraordinary love. What makes it clear here that Christ's love was a self-sacrificial love? It was a self-sacrificial love, He says, for all. Now, he's not trying to make the point that Christ died for every man, woman, and child. No, rather by saying all, he's making it clear that Christ's atoning death was once for all for those whom he purchased. That all, as you go through these two verses, it must be consistent. Those who he died for, those all, those all died with him and those all were raised with him. We know that all not all are raised with Him, so not all died with Him. The all is all those that He died for. This all is consistent throughout the text. And what Paul's point is here is that His sacrifice is once. It's once for all. All He died for died with Him. And those who died with Him were raised with Him. With Him. He's not like the sacrifices before Him. No, it was once for all. It wasn't many after many after many. It wasn't sacrifice for sin sin after sin. Sacrifice. You sin, sacrifice. Sin, sacrifice. No, it is one sacrifice for all. And it's a self-sacrifice for sinners. It's this kind of love. An extraordinary love. How extraordinary. Paul in Galatians 2.20 is thinking upon this idea that Christ died for him and that he died with Christ. And he will say there in Galatians 2.20, he will say, I have been crucified with Christ. In the life I now live in flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. He's trying to contemplate this and he's thinking about this. and I think this is right. I, I'm happy to be corrected if one of you finds something different. I remember hearing it from some other preacher... Sinclair Ferguson, I believe, who said it once, but I believe he's right. This is the only place in the New Testament where someone uses words like this, where he puts it in the first person, where he says, Jesus loves me. that, That song many of us learned as children, and we will teach our children, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. I think this is the only place in the New Testament where someone actually appropriates language like that. Jesus loves me. Now John, the apostle of course, will say that he is the one whom Jesus loved. He will have Jesus speaking about loving the sheep. He will have all kinds of promises and all kinds of comforts throughout the Scriptures that Jesus loves his own but here is paul he's thinking about christ dying for him sacrificing himself for him and he comes to the conclusion and he kind of erupts in a kind of of doxology jesus loves me loves me and did you catch what he called jesus because this is what makes it extraordinary he says, The Son of God, who sacrificed himself and died, loved me. The Son of God, the second person of the triune Godhead, the very Son of the Father who is known. Eternal happiness, and eternal glory, and eternal joy with the Father who know perfect and complete peace. He abandons all of that. That's what's in the mind of Paul, the Son of God. He leaves glory and he becomes part of his creation, his creation. And he suffers at the hand of his creatures. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death upon a cross. Why? Because the Son of God loved me. That's extraordinary love. It's to control us. Jesus will hint at this when He utters what many believe to be hard words when He will say that if anyone... Loves father or mother or son or daughter more than me. He is not worthy of me. But those aren't hard words for someone that has been gripped with the love of Christ. Those are naturally right words. Look, I love my mama. I love my wife. I love my kids. I love my church. But none of these, none of these solicits and demands the love that Christ does from me. Because of the great, extraordinary love He has shown me. That is the heartbeat of the Christian. We live for Christ. The love of Christ controls me. I want to suggest four ways we are to live for Christ this morning. Four ways. We live for Christ by placing our faith in Him. We live for Christ by worshiping Him. We live for Christ by serving His bride. And finally, by seeking to honor Him in all of life. First, we live for Christ by placing our faith in Him no one can live for Christ unless they are united to Christ and no one can be united to Christ apart from faith in Christ Paul's argument here is that because we died in him and with him we are now to live for him what does it mean that you died with him it means that you died to sin it means that you died to your adversary. It means that you died to the world. It means that that old you that was under the dominion of sin is dead. And how is it that you die in Him? You cannot die in Him unless you have faith in Him. Because it is only by having faith in Him that you are united to Him. Living for Christ begins with faith in Christ. And that gives Him glory. There are many, I doubt there are some of you in this room this morning think, well, I've taken up a neutral stance towards Christ. I'm not sure what to make of Him. I'm holding my cards right now. I'm not all in on this Jesus yet. Hedging my bets. I want to see a few more cards laid out before I go all in. And you rationalize that you haven't denied him. But you see, there's no middle ground here. You and I are to go all in on Christ. The reality is that by not making a decision, you've made a decision. Faith honors Christ as He is. It says, I look not to myself. I cannot depend upon myself. I depend wholly and totally upon Him who lived for me and who died for me, who was buried for me, and who was raised on the third day for me. I find all things in Him. He is completely sufficient for me. I need nothing else and I want nothing else. I'm all in on Christ. The reverse is also true. My faith is not yet in Christ. And I am saying by my unbelief that I believe something else is worth living for. That Christ is somehow insufficient. That He's not enough. That I need this something other. And in essence, we are saying that we worship this something other. That something other is worthy of my worship more than Christ. Christ demands to be first in all things. We live for Christ by first having faith in Christ. Second, we live for Christ by worshiping Christ. You and I always worship what we value most, and we are always worshiping. Always. Love. David, in that psalm, Psalm 29, at the very beginning where he is calling out to the angels above. and He says, O oh, heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and honor. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. He's just crying out. There's an overflow of his heart as he is constrained for Christ. As he is compelled by Christ, he wants to see All of the created order. And it's not enough that He just offers His voice alone. He's calling the angels to bear witness with Him. And He's saying, look, give God glory. In essence, worship Him. Worship Him. Why? Because God is worthy of worship. And Christ is God. Living for Christ means worshiping Christ, and that means gathering with God's people week in and week out for worship. You must be here. Required of you. Even in heaven, this is the scene of the angels and the Christians on high. They are gathered to worship. Now we'll discuss in a few moments it is absolutely true that all of life is to be lived and worshipped to God. And yet it is consistent throughout the Scriptures that God's people are gathered together and are to be gathered together to give Him worship. That we are not, as the writer of Hebrews says, to forsake the weekly fellowship of the saints. If you think back over the Scriptures from the foot of Mount Sinai to the temple, to the synagogues, to the private houses in Acts, we see God's people gathering together week after week, Lord's Day after Lord's Day, Sabbath after Sabbath, that they might worship the true living God together. In Acts 2.42, the very beginning of the New Testament church, we read there that the first Christians met together regularly, week in and week out. For what? For the teaching and the fellowship and the Lord's Supper and prayer. In 1 Corinthians 11.18, we read of instructions of, quote, when you come together as a church. This is a unique gathering. Quote, a church as a church. Which is not the same thing as a few Christians gathering together for a Bible study or sitting down to listen to a podcast together. We come together as the church for worship. This is part and parcel of what it means to live a living life of faith for Christ. It's grieved me as I've thought about this, especially the last couple of years hearing the arguments otherwise, and I've often thought the apostles would absolutely blush to think that there are able-bodied Christians who are forsaking meeting together with other Christians for worship. when they watch their brothers and sisters die to gather together. I was saying before this service in here, we have a couple in this room that are not able-bodied, that are struggling with different physical issues. And two people in mind right now that will tell me over and over, I just try and get Sunday to church. I just want to be with God's people to worship Him. That's fundamental to living for Him. We gather for worship every week. You keep at it. Even when you got a problem with someone in this room, they've hurt you. You keep at it. When you're tired and you're weary, you keep at it. You feel like you're languishing in your Christian life, you especially keep at it. When you got a problem with the preacher because he's offended you, or you just don't like that guy, you keep at it. You're here for Christ. This is part of living for Christ. There's another reason you come as well. Third, we live a life for Christ by serving His bride, the church live a life for Christ by serving His bride, the church. Paul will speak of himself this way throughout this book. If we go back to chapter 4, verse 12, he says, so death is at work in us, but life in you. That is, he is dying. He's literally expending himself as death for their sake. He will say in 4.15, for it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people. He will summarize this type of living for the church in just the verse right before our two verses in chapter 5, verse 13. This preceding verse by saying that He is in His right mind in this way. Two ways. He says this is how I know I'm in my right mind. By these two things. What two things, Paul? What two things? He says by living for God And for you. This is living in your right mind. For God and for His church. Living for God or for Christ means living for His people. I do premarital counseling. I always have the couple. One of our sessions, part of that session, is always going through their family of origin. We talk about their siblings that they grew up with. We talk about their mom and their dad. We talk about their uncles and their aunts and their grandparents. and It's purposeful. I want them to see all the positives and some of the negatives. But the other reason of this is so that their future spouse knows, look, you're not just marrying them. For better or for worse, you also get their family. You get the whole package. When the love of Christ is poured out upon us and we are seized and gripped by that love of Christ, we not only get Christ, we get his family, we get one another we live for Christ, for his people. The a constant refrain for Paul throughout the New Testament, and it should be for every Christian. He will go so far as to save Philippians 2 that he is content to be poured out as a drink offering for the sake of, quote, your faith. That is, he's willing to expend himself his entire life. Why? Expend it all that they, that they might grow in their faith. He sees his life as lived underneath the banner, I'm for Christ and I'm for His people. They are two sides of the same coin. If I'm for Christ, I'm for His people. If we would live for Christ, we can't do that hold up in our prayer closets. If we would live for Christ, we can't do that hold up in our homes. If we would live for Christ, we can't do that by just sticking close to our select friend group. To live for Christ means that we pour out our lives for the sake of His bride, the church. Give. Give to one another in community together. You can't do everything all the time. We all live in different seasons of life. Some seasons that you'll be able to give more to your brothers and sisters in Christ in the church gathered than you can at other times. We're to continually live with this family mindset that I am here for them. We live for Christ by placing our faith in Him. By worshiping Him. By serving His bride. And finally, we live for Christ by seeking to honor Him In all of life. Paul will sum this up in 1 Corinthians 10.31. Where he says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do. Do all to the glory of God. At every given moment, Paul is saying, you are either living for God, the creator. Or you're living for something in creation. At any given moment. At every given moment. He's saying that at every given moment, even when we eat or drink, we are to do all to the glory of God. Because we've been constrained, controlled by this love. John Piper will call this the continental divide in theology. Either we believe that God created all this for us, or we believe that He created all this for Him. It's one or the other. And that makes life in our minds either man-centered or it makes it God-centered. I want to be very clear. Everything, everything was created for Him. That means you were created for Him. It means I was created for Him. I often think about this time of year when all the college students descend back upon the university and think there's so many that are coming from all over our state and all over the country and from all over the world and they're coming to gain knowledge. Why they're coming. And I think they could literally learn nothing else while they're here. Nothing. And if they come through these doors and they learn, they were created for Him. They've attained the greatest riches of knowledge that you can possibly have. Created for Him. They need our witness for Him. Once we're united to Him, then all of our life is dominated by this love of Christ, and it solicits our living for Him, all for Him. I will echo this over and over throughout the Scriptures. I love at the end of Romans, he has gone through this magnificent book. The, right, it is the Mount Everest of the Scriptures doctrinally, and he goes through 16 chapters of doctrine detailing the Gospel in Christ Jesus. And then he gets to chapter 16 and we get to the very end in verse 26. And now he's going to apply it all at the end in just kind of one big verse. He says this, that all of this has now been disclosed, has been made known to all nations to bring about the obedience of faith To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. The obedience of faith. The Gospel grants us faith. So that we are united to Christ. And we are then constrained and compelled by that love of Christ. So that now we live in obedience to Him. We live in the obedience of faith. And what's the result? Paul says it is to glorify him. Gives him praise. He will write there in Romans 12 after he has gone through 11 chapters of all the meaty, weighty doctrine, and before he launches into all the rest of the application and Chapter 12 through verse 16, he just wants to set the stage for you in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 12. And what does he say? After all this doctrine, all this gospel of Christ, what does he say? I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to do what? To present your bodies as a living sacrifice. All to Him. What it means? To live for Christ. John Stott commenting upon this said this, he said, for the Christian seeks to live his life in all its parts unto Christ. We to set Christ always before us to keep Him constantly in our minds and before our eyes. Our life is to be directed towards Him. Our ambition is to please, to serve, and to obey Him. And our supreme concern is that in all things he may be glorified in all things stott tells this story about about chadwick uh, samuel chadwick who was uh, the head of the methodist conference in the early 20th century that samuel chadwick had told the story about when he was a boy He was in a Sunday school class and there was a preacher that came to that Sunday school class and the preacher was was teaching them. And he began to talk about John Newton, that famous hymn writer and famous pastor. And the preacher had said this, he said, if John Newton had been a shiner of shoes, he would have been the best shiner of shoes in his village. Because he would have shined those shoes for Jesus. Isn't that beautiful? All for Christ. This lesson captured Samuel Chadwick as he was listening to it because his, one of his weekly chores at home was to shine all of his father's shoes, and he hated it. So the very next day, he was shining his father's shoes, and he had just finished shining the pair of shoes that he most hated shining out of all the shoes that he hated shining. And he said he sat it there on the floor and he looked at it. And in that moment, he remembered the words of his teacher. And Chadwick says this, he said, I thought to myself, I wonder if those boots would look well on the feet of Jesus Christ. And Chadwick then said, for answer, I took up the boots and began again. It was a simple thing to do, but I believe that it was the most important thing I ever did in my life. I got in the habit of doing the simplest duties as unto and for Jesus Christ. You can wash the dishes for Christ. You can sit in a lecture hall, and listen to a boring professor for Christ. You can play with your kids on the floor for Christ. You can do all things for Christ. And that, in fact, is what the Christian is called to do. All for Christ. Why? Because the love of Christ, this extraordinary love, controls us. Just close with this. I just want to feel one stray thought that some have when they think about these things. At the end of our verses here, Paul says this, that purpose clause. I want you to see that purpose clause he has there. He says, And He died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who, for their sake, died and was raised. Paul closes it with, "He died and He was raised for our sake." He calls us to live for His glory. He was die. He died and He was raised for our sake. It goes to that Westminster Shorter Catechism, Question One, which the Westminster Divines so beautifully put down, where they put together these two things, that they're not disparate realities, that we are to seek in life all things to the glory of God, to the glory of Christ, and yet all these things are ultimately for our good. That when you and I seek the glory of Christ, we could say it this way, when we seek the glory of Christ, when we do things for Christ, we're actually doing what is for our good. They're tied together. God in his amazing grace and kindness and mercy has tied them together. And the more that you and I understand that living for Christ is for our good the more life we will have and the more people out there understand that living for Christ is the way the more life there will be out there let the love of Christ constrain you this is the heartbeat of the Christian His love controls us. Let's pray. Our Father, we do exalt You this morning. We're thankful for the great love that You've shown us in Christ Jesus. Who loved me. We all be able to say that in this room this morning. He loves me. And may that love constrain us, control us, shape and mold us for the glory of our great Savior and you, our Father in heaven, we pray this in the strong name of Christ, amen.